Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Greater Alton Church. My name is Tim, and it's good to have you with us this morning, and Happy New Year. Hope the first week has been uh, been good. Last week we had a brunch here, enjoyed it immensely, a great, great time, and um, kicking off our new year with our new theme for the year as well. We're starting a new series today called The Seven. Uh, someone asked me one time, The Seven, is that the Magnificent Seven? Well, it's the, <laughs> it's the Seven Churches of Asia is what we're going to be looking at. And uh, I thought, why not spend the first of the year looking at the kind of church God wants? And we learn from looking at these seven churches, the kind of church God wants. I don't know if you ever thought about that. What kind of church do you want? And you ask people what kind of church they want, you get a host of answers. And it's based on things like um, our heritage. Sometimes it's based on a memory, an experience we've had. And sometimes we base what we want in a church uh, on our culture. And believe it or not, sometimes it's the Bible itself. You know, the Bible actually has a play in it sometimes. And so what I wanted to do this week is start looking at a particular church in the book of Revelation. I've never preached out of the book of Revelation. I got to thinking about that. I've done classes, but I've never done a sermon series on uh, anything from the book of Revelation. It's been kind of a, a book that I've avoided, I guess. I didn't realize it. And so uh, I'm looking forward to this. I ask you pray for me as we look at this. There's a host of books written about what a church ought to be. Uh, Everything from a purpose-driven church to what makes a church healthy, what are the things, the traits of the church. Uh, For years, I've tried to use the book of Acts as my idea of what the church ought to be. You know, in Acts 2, where they're devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to breaking bread, to fellowship. And everybody was filled with awe. And um, I always thought to myself, I've, I've, I've recognized that last one. Because I've seen a lot of people go, oh, come on. <laughs> you know, oh, you got to be kidding. <laughs> you know, the others have been a challenge. But um, then I started looking that not only is Acts 2 uh, a good, a good uh, reference to the kind of church God wants, we see that in the epistles and in these seven churches. Before I get started on this, again, just think about this. What kind of church do you want and where do you get your concept? Of church because there's a church that God wants. There's a church that He's after, and I'm hoping in this series that we'll look as we look we'll learn a little bit about the kind of church that God wants, and that we'll adjust our expectations to meet His. Now, there's an article written, um, or not an article, it was a radio host. I'm sorry, um, a radio host I found by a guy named Rick Thomas, and he did a little little uh, broadcast on. Uh, what kind of church do you attend? And he, he gives the top six types of churches or kinds or styles of churches. And maybe you might recognize a few of these. Um, here are the six most popular he found. The first one is the seeker church. And this church here relates really well to the culture. In fact, they're influenced by the culture quite a bit. They, they come up with the latest sermon series that deals with the latest issues. They're building. They try to make as culture-friendly as possible. Um, they, they are so influenced by the culture, sometimes they cater to the culture. They have great drawing power. In the last 20 years, these seeker-sensitive churches have drawn large crowds. The weakness, though, is, is they begin to plateau. And uh, they, they also find themselves with memberships that are shallow and weak because they never get past the felt needs of people. They just seem to st- stay right in that particular level. 
There's the do-over church. That's the second one. Now, this is an interesting church because usually this kind of church attracts people who have had bad experiences at churches. And this church here talks about grace all the time. Grace is good. The love of God is good. But they talk about it so, so much that they emphasize it so much that rules seem to not be a, a part of their message. You know, we don't, we, we don't like the rules. We don't think we ought to be following the rules. We just need to let God, you know, God loves us. And so everything's grace, grace, grace. And what you find is in this church is there's, they are weak. This is their weakness. They're weak in application. And they have a hard time mentoring people because after all, if there are no rules, how can you tell anybody what to do? Makes sense. Then there's the evangelistic church. This is the third one that he lists. And it's great at bringing people to Christ. I mean, they bring all kinds of people to, and they study with people. They bring lots of people to Christ. Their mission, they make it clear, their mission in, in this world is to win people to Christ. They'll even have scriptures that you'll see on the way out the door to remind you of your mission out there. The weakness of these kinds of churches, most, most likely, that this guy points out is, they see their mission out there, but they don't recognize their mission in here. And so they reach lots of people, and they lose lots of people. Then there's the ministry church. This church is a busy church. They're doing all kinds of good things for the Lord. And they have a ministry for just about everything. In fact, they'll use their ministries as entry points for people. They'll use them to introduce them to Christ. Now the thing, it's, it's a great, it, it's a great uh, approach. The problem and the weakness is the people are so busy taking care of other people, they fail to take care of themselves. So it leads to burnout. And, and they don't want to get back in ministry. It's not fun anymore for them, not enjoyable. And ministry becomes so important that it's raised such, to such, such a high importance on the scale of things at a church that it's more important than the character of Christ. So you have people not only involved in ministry, but leading ministries whose character is not quite like Christ. We're not talking about inconsistency. We're talking about major problems there. But because, because they're so busy and they do so much for the church, their character goes unchallenged for years. There's the educational church. And what uh, Rick Thomas talks about this church, this is the church that loves to find those little nuggets of information. They love going, they believe, deep and finding those little nuggets of information. And so people learn a lot, but the weakness is many times they fail to find the application. And so it's very difficult for them to help others. It's a great concept, but they can't get it to application for some reason. And folks, like I heard somebody say one time, information without application leads to frustration and no transformation. So you, this idea is, it's good, but it has its weaknesses. Then there's the discipling church. And this one is probably the rarest type of church of all. It closely resembles the New Testament pattern of the early church. It's big on mentoring. So they try to provide a place of transparency and honesty. They deal with serious issues and serious sins and difficulties. But because... This is difficult to do because it takes lots of time and focus and energy. Very few churches will pay the price to do it. 
What tends to happen with churches like this, when they're focused on discipling, they can get into legalism. They can get into abusive behavior, abusive ways of dealing with people. And because they lack, they lack some of the other things the other church styles have, you know, they begin to stagnate. Now, I don't know what, what you thought as I was describing all these. I know what I thought as I listened to this fellow. I couldn't help but think, but don't all these have merits? Don't all these churches have some kind of merit? Isn't it good to be connected to our culture? Don't we want to be connected to our culture and at least be able to relate to our culture? Absolutely. And don't, and don't we believe in the grace of God? Don't we want to give, tell people, tell people that you can start over, that God, it's okay, it's do over? Absolutely. Do we want to reach the world? Absolutely. Do we want to educate people? Do we want people just to be stuck in some, some level of immaturity? Of course not. We believe, we, we, we should want that. And do we want to be helping and mentoring people? Become like Christ? Absolutely. When I look at this, I think about, I thought, I thought about adding a seventh one, and that's the event church. They do lots of cool events. Hmm. Huh? Boy, they can bring them in. Thousands came! You know, and then that Sunday, none of them show up. And so it's, so we can get all event driven as well. What I did do notice as I read through these, all these are good approaches. They have weaknesses. In other words, they're not perfect. No church is perfect. If there's anything I've learned over 30 years is that no church is perfect. Not even the early church was perfect. You read the epistles, the letters to the early church. You read First and Second Corinthians and you know the church is not perfect. But i got to tell you, we're not a perfect church either. we got some problems. You know, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, this November we'll be 30 years old here. 30 years old as a church. Man, I've seen it all. Seen, so, I mean, so many good things. Some of you here are sitting here because, because somebody loved the Lord and shared their faith with you. You were part of it. We, we, remember, we, we, I think the very first group of us, there were some of you here from the original group, met in my basement at my house. And then we went to the Holiday Inn for a while. Remember that? Some of you here go, no. We, went to, we were in the Holiday Inn for a while, before the Nats, ladies, before the Nats. What do you mean? Ask a lady. It went to a lady's retreat. Before the Nats, we were there. We were the Nats, you know. And then, and then we, we bought this uh, brick building across from Kane's Waterbed. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I remember we had the Hot Wheels rally, the big Hot Wheels rally, and we had the, had the, the track going down the aisle. It ran the length of the building, and we watched, remember when 9-11, or not 9-11, but when we, Desert Storm, and we got a big screen TV, and we watched, watched uh, the, the news coverage of Desert Storm and prayed for our country at the time. Talk about... Oh my, those carpet squares. Oh my, those stupid carpet squares. Super Bowl parties. Then we got into this grocery store and we bought some more land and built this. This. And planted a church at the, at the same time. I could think of some good stuff that's happened over the years. Lots of good stuff. Good hearts. You have good hearts. 
done a lot of good things, saved a lot of marriages, saved a lot of people. But we've made our mistakes. You can't, you can't do church without mistakes. You just can't. I've tried. You can't, you can't do church and please everybody. I've tried that too. Boy, what a mess that, that makes. I just think of some of the things I regret I wish I could have done differently. I can't change it. All I can do is change now. You probably can think of some mistakes you made. Confronting people about stuff. You thought, why did I do that? Why did, why did I make that the issue? Why did, I, why did I say that, do that? Mistakes. Blind spots. we got plenty of them. We still do. Lots of blind spots. So it's good for us. It's good for you and I, as a church, to look and recognize and address these blind spots, these flaws, these weaknesses that we have as a people, as a group of believers, as a church. So I want to ask you simply to think about this question. We're going to try to answer this question in this series. What kind of church does God want? Not what kind of church you want, what kind of church I want. Man, this is hard because we all want the church to be a certain way. I've just got to tell you, that's the truth. I've got an idea of what I want the church to be. You've got an idea of what the church, what you want it to be, and it's different. But you know, we need to look at the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want it to be? And, and have that. Go after that. And so I've had to sit down with my books and have a talk with them, all these other books I've read, and say, listen, guys, I appreciate your help, but I'm going to let Jesus teach me for a little while. All good stuff. You know, Today I want to look at a church here that's in Revelation, the book of Revelation, that done so many good things, but they had a serious problem. It was a big one. And it, um, we're going to start reading in Revelation chapter 2. If you want, you've got a Bible, you can turn there. I've got it up here on the screen. And we're looking at the NIV um, today, this particular passage. The book of Revelation was, was uh, written to the seven churches. It was written to get ready for persecution that was coming. Um, it's written in apocalyptic language. What's that, what's that mean? That's just a fancy way to say it's written in eye-catching and ear-catching language. And it has a message. It has a message. Jim McGuigan says that the book of Revelation, the theme of it is, we win. Because the church is about to go through the ringer. And he wants this, these churches to know that. And so we're going to pick it up. And, and John, the apostle, one of the apostles, the last apostle alive, has this dream, has this vision. And we, so we see these images. And then God tries to explain to John what they mean. So here in, in uh, chapter 2, let's pick it up. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. First of all, I want you to see the word hold means he has all of it. He doesn't hold it partially. He doesn't hold on to his church with two fingers. Jesus has all of it in the palm of his hand. Thank God. Thank God. You're in the palm of God's hand. He's got all of it. He has a hold of it. It's not going anywhere. 
He goes, and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. The image is he's walking through these lampstands to maintain them and make sure that they're in good shape, they're healthy. I know your deeds. I want you to see there, Jesus knows everything about you. He knows what you do and why you do it. And that either can be exciting or be a little scary, huh? But he knows. He understands. I know your deeds. And look what he says to this church. Your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your candle stand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I notice two things here I want to say to you real quickly. Number one, God defines what kind of church we are to be. God defines what kind of church we are to be. And the second thing is, I determine what kind of church we will be. God may define it, but folks, you and I are going to define, we're going to determine what it's going to be. Are we going to live up to that definition? And you say, how do you know that? Well, look at this verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. He says, if you've got ears, you better listen to what I've got to say to these churches because it's what I want. And then he says this, to the one, see that? It's personal. To the one who is victorious, who listens, who responds properly to what, to, who, who turns and does the things that I want a church to be. I give the right to eat at the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. By the way, another word for paradise is garden. When I think of the garden of God and a tree of life, do you think of the garden of Eden? I sure do. And he's saying to the one who listens to me, turns to me, attains what I want the church to be, oh, you are going to experience life like you never have. You're going, it's going to restore what was broken by sin. Remember Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And Jesus is saying, if you'll listen and You'll be victorious. You'll have, to, you'll have to fight some things, some attitudes, some habits, some culture. But if, you, if you're victorious, guess what? You will be a part of a restoration of what was broken. We'll be back together again like we were in the garden when Adam and Eve walked with me every day. So I want to say this to you as we get into this is because it's really quiet in here. As we go through this series, I, I'm, I'm going to do my best. I ask you to do your best. That we not make it about sizing up our church as a whole or some other church, but we make it more personal. Because he says, if you have an ear, you need to listen. What I'm saying to these churches and be the one, I'm, I want to challenge you, be the one that's going to be victorious through this series. Because there's a host of reasons why we do what we do in church as a Christian. And God wants to purify our motives today. 
So what does God want the church to be? I've got two points. One short one and one long one. Okay, number one. God wants His church to present His light. He wants His church to present His light. It says in Revelation 2.1, these are the words of Him who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And what it, the image there is, it's a man who's managing and maintaining the lamps. The lampstands. The lamps on the lampstands. Lampstand. What an interesting word. Because it says here in Revelation 1.20 that the seven lampstands lampstands are the seven churches. So they represent church, what church should be. And what does a lampstand do? It holds the light in place. You put a lamp where it's dark. So it holds the light in place. I think about Scriptures like where in 1 John it says, God is light and in Him there's no darkness. And I think about is it possible that what's going on here is that the purpose of the church is to bring the presence of God into dark places? Now, what do you mean, Tim? Well, you think about it. God is associated with flames. Uh, there's the burning bush. There's the pillar of fire. Tongues as of fire rested on the apostles when they spoke in, in, in different languages in Acts 2. Jeremiah talks about your word is like a fire in my bones. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the presence of God. And here we see in this passage here that we are the lampstands. We're the purpose of us, purpose of you, purpose of me, and together we're to bring God's presence into dark places. Can you think of any dark places where God needs to be revealed? I was at I was with Bob Bader a few weeks ago. We did that simulation golf where you bring your own golf clubs and there's this big screen and you get a computer, you program in the particular golf course. And we, we played Pebble Beach. Well, we attempted to play Pebble Beach. Okay, and I'm hitting and the ball, you know. And so um, I'm hunting for the ball, you know. It's got all these features, it's kind of cool. We get done playing. We couldn't believe it. You know, you don't ride in a cart. You just hit the ball and step aside, and the next guy hits the ball. We only played nine holes, and it took us over two hours to play nine holes like it would on a regular course. I couldn't figure this out. That's how bad we were. <laughs> and so after we get done playing, I go to pay for my, my uh, fee for playing golf and for the wings or whatever I had, my share. And I have to go into the bar area because this is a separate building. Now I'm going into that outdoor bar where they have the plastic windows at Ropers. You guys know where that is? The Regal Beagle? It's nasty in there. I walk in, you smell musty beer and lots of cigarettes. And it's loud. And it's dark. Real dark. You can't quite make out who's in there. And I'm talking to these two young ladies helping me with my bill. And I listen to what they're talking about. And it's awful stuff. And I think to myself, this is a dark place. What a dark place. Guys are roughing it up in the corner, wrestling and fighting, because they've been, they're drunk. 
And I'm thinking, what am I doing here? Why, I remember when I was a kid, stay away from those places. The reason I'm there dawned on me was to be a light. And there's lots of dark places in our world. You are in your neighborhood because it's dark. You are on the campus, whether it's a grade school campus, a high school campus, or a college campus. You are there to bring God's presence into that classroom, into that, to that party, because it's dark there. You're in your family, in your home. It's dark there. Right now, Stephanie is in um, the hospital. And, you know, she's not doing well. We're into the, we need to make her comfortable. You know what that means. And I thought to myself, um, Alt Memorial has no idea who is in that room. They have no idea in that little room. That is a bright light. Even as she's dying, she shines in a dark place. We're there. That's what we're we're to be. Can you think of any dark places in your family, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your community, in this church? We're here to shine the presence of God into these dark places. Jesus said it this way to a group of believers. You are the light that gives light to the world. A city that is built on a hill cannot be hidden. And people don't hide a light under a bowl. They put it on a lampstand. What's the purpose of a lampstand? To hold the light. What is the church? A lampstand. Designed to do what? Hold the light. So the light shines for all the people in the house. So God can shine... Everywhere it sets. Everybody that's in the house. Workplace. Neighborhood. In the same way, you should be a light for other people. Live so they will see the good things you do and praise your Father in Heaven. Give credit to God and glory to God, not to you. Because all you are All I am. We're not the main thing. We just hold the light, which is the main thing. What we're doing is we're displaying the character of Jesus. Just like what He did, Matthew 4 talks about, light came into the darkness and darkness did not understand Him. He shined the love of God and the character of God to people. That's what you and I are doing. That's what we're to do. Look what Paul says to the church at Ephesus. He says this to the church of Ephesus. They understood about the lampstand. They got it. They understand what their purpose is. Look what he says. You used to be like people living in the dark, but now you're people of the light because you belong to the Lord. So act like people of the light. We are here to shine the presence of God, to bring the presence of God into these dark places. Number two, God wants His church to possess His love. That's what I'm learning from this passage. You say, no, Tim, we're supposed to express that love. Listen, if you don't possess it, you won't express it. 
You know, Ephesus was a real impressive city. It's called the Gateway to Asia. You ever heard a term like that before? I don't think they had an arch or a baseball team. But they were the Gateway to Asia. It's a big town. Of the seven churches, it's the biggest city, a major city. It's a free city. That means that uh, there, were no, there was no Roman occupying army, no garrison in this city. The Romans trusted them. It's a city that had all kinds, all kinds of religious groups, uh, mystical groups, sorcery groups, black magic, whatever you want to call it. They had it all. In fact, it was believed that their documents, just a letter or a book from your particular mystical group, had supernatural powers. If you were to touch it, you could be healed. And they were everywhere. Like Rome, they held their own version of the Olympics, the games. And they're also a very immoral city. Very immoral. Why their own prophets, their own mystical prophets, would weep at the immorality they saw in their town. You know, you think, why in the world would Paul go there to start a church? But that's what he does when you read the book of Acts. And this place that looks so hardened to God, appears so dirty and morally awful, was the most fertile place for a church to start. Because see, not only was the town impressive, the church was impressive too. It was a big church. Lots of people. Lots of people. Lots of people went to this church. Think about the people that were in this church. This was started by the Apostle Paul. Timothy preached at this church for a while. Apollos was a part of this church. Aquila and Priscilla were a part of this church. Kind of interesting when you talk, think about it. This, is a, this, this church has got a lot going for it. It's believed even John was a part of this church or was, was related to this church in some ways. So it's a very impressive place to be. In Acts 19, we read about the church there, people becoming Christians, burning these sacred mystical books. They didn't give them away. They didn't sell them. They burned them. And it was 50,000 worth 50,000 drachma. You may say, what's that? That's like one person's wages for 140 years. That's how much, how radical they were into following Christ. And Jesus praises Ephesus when He talks to them here in Ephesians. Look what He says. He goes, I know your deeds. Your hard work. The wor- that worked hard means literally means they worked to the point of exhaustion. They worked extremely hard to sweat. They sacrificed time. They sacrificed energy. They worked hard in ministry. They worked hard to reach their, their friends. They worked hard to becoming like Christ. They worked hard in their relationships to the point of exhaustion. All night prayer sessions, no sweat to them. 
work, working trees in the trunk? You've got to be kidding. That'd be a vacation for them. You say, Tim, it's pretty exhausting. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm tired too. They're doing this all the time with everything. They just tackled it. He goes, he says, I know your perseverance. They, he says, I know you refuse to quit. You will not quit. You persevere through trials. It's not that you just, you just uh, endure them and hunker down and go, oh, wait till it goes over. No, you attack. You keep working. You will not grow weary. You're still energetic. You keep going and going. And he says, you cannot tolerate wicked people. He goes, man, you guys are serious about sin. Man, you don't sweep things under the rug. You're radical. Talk about cutting it off and plucking it out. You're that radical. In a Listen, guys, churches become, eventually, become like the culture. Do you know that? That's a fact. That's what happens to churches. That's why they die. They end up becoming like the culture they're in. And he says, not at Ephesus. No, you fight. You deal with it. You don't give an inch morally in a cesspool of immorality. You stay fresh. Integrity matters to you. You remember Acts 20? Remember Acts 20 where Paul's talking to the church at Ephesus? He says, when I leave, savage wolves will come in dressed as sheep and come and take the flock, advantage of the flock, and lead, listen, and lead some away to themselves. Paul said, you got to watch that. Guess what? Ephesus did. They'd bust you out. They'd look at you. You come in claiming to be some, some big shot or some teacher. They, they would watch and look at your life and test you. And if you were a fake, busted! Why? Truth mattered. And then there's these Nicolaitans. I thought they were Nickelodeons. That's a different group. The Nicolaitans, who were they? There's not a lot of information about these guys. And what I could find, what little I could find was they indulged themselves in immorality as they claimed to follow the Scriptures. They, they, didn't, they didn't have a lot of regard for rules, but they sure wanted to know everything. And so they had this wishy-washy, lukewarmy, mix-it-all-up, worldly point of view that came into their church. And Ephesus says, we're not having that. We're not going to have that. And I want you to notice it says, Jesus says, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. He didn't say he hated them, but hated what they were doing. That's important to remember. But there's something wrong with this church. There's something that's tragic that's happened here. What's happened? Because Jesus says, I hold this against you. You know, Jesus don't look the other way and He's not going to be a good old boy for you and I. He's going to tell us the truth. And He says, look, i got something i got to tell you. i got to, I got to say, what is it? You've forsaken the love you had at first. What do you mean? There's something that's changed in your church. Yes, you're real active. Man, you're, you work hard. And man, you hang in there. And man, you are solid. You're solid doctrinally. You're doing so many good things there. And I think that's great. But there's something not quite right. You've lost, you've lost what's, Church is really all about. 
It's about love. You don't love me like you used to. And you don't love each other like you used to. Now, I know some of you here are already trying to size up Greater Alton or some other church that burned you. You need to stop that. If you have ears, listen to what God is saying to you today. Look what it says here in Jeremiah 2. I thought, what a strange... I, what a passage. The Lord's talking about Israel through Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says, I remember how eager you were to please me as a young bride long ago, how you loved me and followed me even through the barren wilderness. He says, I remember that young love when we first were together. You know, Denise and I, we first got married. We lived in a, in a uh, trailer. You were trailer trash? Yeah. I kid you not. I could push out the wall on one end. I said, Denise, I see daylight. No, you don't. And I pushed the wall out and grabbed some grass. Look what I got. But we didn't care. We had a black and white TV. In 1978, I bought it for 10 bucks from a guy named John Yates. And when you watched Andy Griffith, you really didn't notice the difference. <laughs> and we didn't care. Our furniture is borrowed. Wore out. We don't care. Why? Because we're in love. The furnace is broke down. I'm talking about, not today, Denise. Back then. <laughs> Our furnace is messed up right now. We don't know what it is. We'll figure it out. But I remember we had the electric furnace. And you remember those, it was electric, and those little coil wires would, like a light bulb, they'd burn out, and we'd, I'd put a bolt in there. And it would glow just like the rest of it. It worked for a couple of weeks. We didn't care. We were in love. And it wasn't roomy. So what? We could hear people arguing that we're three feet from us. Our trailers are so close. Who cares? Cars are borrowed. Furniture's borrowed. The bed we slept in, borrowed. When you're young, you don't care about that kind of stuff. That's what he's saying. Because you, you know, guys, remember long ago you loved me and we fo you followed me through the barren wilderness and you didn't care. Remember those days? And he goes on to go, what happened? What happened? When I was a kid in 1965, I remember hearing a song by Sonny and Cher. It was their big first major hit. Let me read some of the lyrics to you. They say we're young and we don't know. We won't find out until we grow. Well, I don't know if all that's true. That's Sonny's part. Because you got me and baby, I got you. I got you, baby. I got you, baby. They say our love won't pay the rent. This is share. Before it's earned, our money's always spent. Boom, boom, boom. I guess that's so. There's Sonny again. We don't have a plot. 
He's a short, ugly guy, you know. At least I'm sure of all... The, how did he end up with her? Of all the things we got. Babe. I got you, babe. Cher's got the beautiful hair. All of her teeth. Sonny looks like he'd been run over by a truck. I remember watching them on TV. My mom and dad giggling because they do that opening monologue. And if you, you younger folks go to YouTube, you can see what I'm talking about. And they banter back and forth like a married couple, but it's kind of flirty. And so you're kind of going, that is so cool. Look at them. I look at mom and dad. It's <laughs> giggling. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sitting there just thinking, that is so neat. They were the couple in the 60s. Everybody, just about everybody was watching Sonny and Cher. Ten years later, they filed for divorce. And it just messed everybody up. What? You guys, what? What What happened? Well, they got famous, and they got busy, and they lost their love. I remember they tried to come back with that show, and everybody knew they were divorced. Some of you remember that? And it just wasn't the same, was it? I can't, I'll go to the Smothers Brothers now. I'll go watch them. I can't watch Sonny and Cher because it's not love anymore. They're doing it for love of something else. What I do matters to God. You agree with that? Why I do it matters just as much. In fact, I think why I do it may matter a little bit more then what I do, oh, you sound like you're saying as long as you're sincere. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying God is focusing on this. Look at the warning He gives them. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, here it comes, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. He says, take a good look of where you were and where you are now. And He's saying, look, you cannot represent Me if it's not about loving me and loving other people. I've, you can be... A, listen, I believe Jesus could say this. I think I'm not stretching the Scriptures. You can meet as a group and you can be in your phone book and be on Facebook and have a web page and Twitter, Twitter, whatever you want to be on. But listen, folks, if you don't love, you're, in, you're there, but you're not going to be shining my light. I'm going to come take it and I'm going to give it to another place. I'm going to let somebody else do the job. You know that bulletin cover? Look at that bulletin cover. That's one of four designs that Ashley uh, Grove and I were looking at. We were figuring out what do we want to do? How do we want to, you know, because a picture is worth a thousand words. What, what do we do with this bulletin cover? And we had one that was so spectacular, real gold and pretty. We may use it sometime in the, in the, in the series here. And then we, and she said, she saw that one. She goes, oh, Tim, oh. She saw this one, the one you're when you're pulled. I go, what is it, Ashley? Well, that's haunting. I go, what's it saying? It's saying I better really make sure I do what God wants, or He's gonna, you know, don't let Satan it out, right? Jesus, are you puckering up? What are you doing? I don't want to be that. That's how important our motive is. You've probably been looking at this for quite a while. What are you doing, Tim, with Coca-Cola? 
Well, there are 12 people here. Don't you get a coat? No, that's not what it's about. No. I'm not, I'm a Mountain Dew guy. But I heard, that, uh, this was the illustration I ran across this week. Just happened to run across it. Well, I ran across it last week. And a fellow bought, it, bought him uh, some soda just like this. And what he did was he opened it up, you know, and, and uh, got inside, got him a can out, and he opens it up. And, I, you know, by the way, I like Coke. <laughs> and the guy said he took a drink out of it, and he said, there's something wrong. And he's looking... And, he gives a call. He calls up Coca-Cola. I need to talk to somebody. Give me a suit. Give me somebody that has some power up there. Well, hold on. Hold on. They finally get him to this person. What's the problem? Who are you? I'm vice president of operations here at Coca-Cola. Well, let me tell you something. There's something wrong with your soda. What do you mean? I'm telling you there's something wrong with your soda. I took a taste of it. It tastes like vinegar. Wait a second. How's the box? Huh? Well, well, it could be damaged. Is the package okay? How does it look? He goes, hold on. He looks at it. He goes, it looks just fine. Oh, good. You know how much research we put into packaging that product? I mean, it's just astronomical, the money we've spent. What about the can? Huh? What about the can? Is there a hole in it? Is there a dent in it? Sometimes, you know, a hole, you know, maybe the, maybe, no, it looks just fine. It's just fine. It just tastes awful. Oh, good. You know, that aluminum can. It is made out, it's made out of aluminum and it's used in machinery that pu- pulls it to, uses a drawing system and we've worked millions of dollars on this can. He said, it's not the can! Oh, hmm, I wonder what it is. It's the taste! It's awful! I don't understand why. Maybe it's the formula! You know, remember that time you jerry-rigged around with that Coke formula years ago at New Coke and F- this is off, this is worse. And I couldn't help but think, church, we can look like a good church. We can look like we, boy, look at us. We got it slick. We, people get on our website. People get, get, get on our Facebook. As individuals, we can look like we got lots going good here. And even, even they people first come here and they get a real good impression of us. Not a dent for 50 miles. Looking good. Seats are set up good. Temperatures we're working on. You know, we're getting there. But then somebody after a while goes, I must have said something happened. It must have been a fluke. Couldn't be. Oh. Oh, no. I can't do this. I can't do this anymore. You see, love is what makes the church taste so good. And that's why it's so important. And you know, some of you are sitting in the seats going, Oh, about Tim, make that. I'm saying that to you. That love, see, Man, put it on him, Tim. That's real loving, isn't it? I've had people say to me, you should bust me out. You should have challenged me on stuff. And I'm saying, if you're looking for a place that's going to take your head off, 
I can suggest a few churches if you'd like to do that. I ain't the guy anymore. I just don't want to do that. Well, you've got to stand up for what's right. Of course. But I'll tell you what. If, see, guys, I can do all kinds of things for other reasons. I can work hard for other reasons, and you can too. I work hard sometimes for greed. Because I'm greedy. Sometimes I work hard so people, because I'm prideful, look what I'm doing. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? Aren't there other reasons to work hard? I'm going to work hard so I can show them. That sounds malicious. That don't sound like love. Well, I can persevere. Guys, I'm a stubborn man. I'm not giving up. I'm not going to give somebody else the pleasure of saying, Oh, he gave up. <laughs> There's all kinds of other reasons to work hard and to persevere. And there's all kinds of reasons to be hard on sin. I'm hard on it because I'm jealous of you. Hello? Getting awful quiet, Alan. You know, it's, it's indicting, isn't it? I've been all that. <laughs> yeah, just you and me. We need to, well, we need to hear it. We do need to hear this. I, you know what I'm saying? It's, we, we, we all do this for different reasons. And then, you know what? Here's how I know. Here's what's so strange. When I'm working, or I'm hanging in there, or I'm confronting sin, and I've got love of God in there, you know I know I, know I have the love of God, number one, because it feels different. It just, oh my. And I feel much better about it. I'm going to say no to sin in my life. You know, I have, I have temptations like anybody else here. I know some of you here, have incredible sexual temptations, especially younger. I know that. You know, it doesn't go away when you're 59, 60 years old. It's still there. I don't know if that means I'm healthy or I'm just a sinner. There's greed. There's anger, bitterness, all this stuff that... that and I want to say no to it. Well, I, I want to say no to it because it's bad for me. Well, that's nice. But you know, I've learned... When, my, when I start looking at, do I love the Lord? It's, I'm stronger with temptation. When it's love that's doing this to me. Love makes the church taste so good. And I've learned something. Maintaining love must be a common problem with churches. Because it was a common problem in the churches in the Bible. Look at this passage and try to get weddings out of your mind. If I had the gift of being able to speak in other languages without learning them and could speak in every language there is in all of heaven and earth but didn't love others, I'd only be making noise. If I had the gift of prophecy and I knew all about what was going to happen in the future, knew everything about everything but didn't love others, what good would that do? Even if I had the gift of faith so I could speak to a mountain and make it move, I would still be worth nothing. I would be worth nothing at all without love if I gave everything I had for poor people and I were burned alive for preaching the gospel but didn't love others, it would be of no value whatsoever. Paul's talking to the 
church in Corinth. Did you know that if you read, I'd like to give you an assignment, if you would, read the book of Ephesians this week and count how many times Paul uses the word love or refers to love. You're going to be surprised. He knew it was a problem for any church. And even the great Ephesus church needed to be reminded of their love. Let me give you another passage here from that he gave he, some instruction here. God's grace to all of you who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love that never ends. Of course, it did end, didn't it? Something had happened. But Paul says, oh, I want you to keep loving. So what do you do? What do you do if you've lost your love? What if, what if uh, somehow some other motive has crept in to what I'm doing? My serving. My repentance. My leadership. Some other desire has taken its place. I want to tell you, folks, you're good people. You are good people. I think I'm a good person. I think we're good people. But we're not perfect people. It's good for us to look at this, this motive thing all the time. Because those who have this, this idea of love, not competition, not anger and bitterness, not ambition. It's about just about loving God and loving others. They do so much better as a Christian. How do I rekindle my love for God? First thing I do is I remember what Jesus has done for me. I talk to married couples. I are a married couple. And uh, one of the things that I'll listen to people say, you know, we we just fell out of love. We don't we don't love each other like we used to. What would you suggest? And and they already know the answer. They already know the answer. You probably ought to start doing the things you did when you were when you first met one another. You might not be able to turn the age clock back, but you can turn back the habitual clock, and you can go back and just just start, you know, doing the things you used to do. First of all, what was it you remember about her or him that made you love? Oh, oh my! Never thought of that. Yeah, you're thinking of how they are now, but you know you can you can love somebody again if you've fallen out of love. You can love them again, and it starts with remembering and thinking about them when you first were together. Look at what John says to the church in Revelation here. This is the Living Bible. It says, "Think about those times of your first love. How different now." Remember the height which you've fallen. He says, think about the times of your first love. By the way, that word think about or remember means to keep remembering. Remember. My mom and dad, my dad used to say, send me out on a date, just remember something, son. You need to be careful out there. Because if you come home and you do something, you're going to be in trouble. Now you say, well, that's not, well, that's what kept me in line. Then my mother would say, come here, let me give you a better motivation. You represent our family. Do you love your family? Of course I do, Mom. Then you need to represent your family well. And let your love for your mother and father and your brothers and your family name, let it motivate you to be a, to be a good boy when you're out there with your girlfriend. I tell you, I like that motivation a whole lot better, huh? 
And I'm just saying to your church, you know, if, if you've fallen out of love, if love is not dominating your spirit, your core, you can rekindle it by remembering how it all began. And you used to open that Bible up with somebody. When you discovered about your sin, the tragedy of your sin, and the victory of the cross. Let me give you one more thing here. It says here, Ever since I heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and of the love you have for the Christians everywhere, notice that, this church is very influential. They have strong faith, and at this time they had a great love. I have never stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you wisdom to see clearly and really understand who Christ is and all that He has done for you. He's saying, you know, I've heard about your love. You've got it. Let me tell you how to keep it. Let me tell you how to rekindle it, keep it alive. Remember what Christ has done for you. Number two, I rekindle my love for God. I can do that when I return to the habits that deepen my love for Jesus. I just got to get back to the habits that I used to have. I tell married couples all the time, Denise and I have had to do it ourselves at times. You know what? We're We're so busy. We're so busy helping each other and helping other people. We're not taking care of each other. We're not taking care of our marriage. Our our relationship is having some struggles. Listen, folks, any relationship, any relationship suffers through neglect. And so my relationship with God, I need to, if I, I can neglect it too. I get so busy. I don't know how many times I hear people say this. This year, I'm going to get in my Bible. And I'll ask, so what do you think happened last year? I was too busy. And by the time I had any margin, I was so exhausted. And so they say, I'm going to make it a first priority instead of the last priority. And I'm going to make time for it. And I'll have to cut out something else so I can do it. I remember years ago, I had a quiet time. Maybe two or three days in a row, and then I'd skip a few days. Or I'd have a, a two or three days in a row and skip a few weeks, and I was just so ashamed of it. And I remember saying to myself, I am going to get with the Lord every day, even if it kills me. And seven years later, I'm still every day, and it didn't kill me. It's something I just, I go, if I, and, I, and I think about the last seven years, some of the stuff I've had to go through. I don't think it's coincidental that the Word of God, walking with God and walking through all that stuff, I would not be here. I would be gone. I don't even know if I'd be following the Lord. He says here, Turn back to me again and work as you did before. I get back into the habit of spending time with the Lord. I get back into the habit of praying. I get back into the habit... Of, of being at small group. You're not going to wonder if I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there. Bar none. It's, I'm going to be there all the time. I'm going to get back into serving in a ministry or serving people. And I'm going to get back into worshiping. Some of us here, we come to worship. We sit here like a bump on the log and don't participate and wonder. Wonder why our relationship with God is as poor as it is. You say, well, Tim, well, so you're saying you just want everybody to sing. No, I don't want everybody just to sing. Well, you want everybody to clap their hands and jump up and down and act like, you know, we're having some kind of a, you know, euphoric. No, I'm not saying that either. Well, what are you saying? I'm saying sometimes you've got to do the right thing before you feel like it. That's the way it works. Feelings always follow faith. You do the right thing, then the feelings will follow. 
And some of you are waiting for the feeling. Ain't going to happen. But if you'll step out on faith, turn back, it says to me again, and work, do, then you'll find your love. I've watched marriages, I've watched couples who've neglected themselves, they go back to the basics. Talking to one another, being kind to one another, forgiving each other, and they're back in love. Oh, it's just coincidental. No, it's not. They know what they need to do and they just start doing it. I'm saying to you, whether it's a quiet time, or test this year and see if it'll kill you. I double dog dare you. I triple dog dare you. See if it'll kill you. It won't. You'll find life. I know there's another passage. We're going to stop right there. Two questions here. There's a third thing that I did, did not make the PowerPoint. And I, I'm simply going to say this to you. Why not dig it back your love? Why not start today by just simply rededicating your love to God? What love you have, He can make grow. If you'll just redirect it, say, Lord, here's what I've got. I used to have more. I love. I have less love and I want more love. So I'm going to take what little i got and I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to dedicate myself and my love to you again. Help me see. Help me understand all the things you've done for me. And God will make it grow. Two questions as we close. And if you want to get those cards out, if you, if you want to respond with a comment or a prayer request, you may this morning. Have, have, have I lost my first love? Where, compared to where I was and where I am now, have I... Have I just lost it? I know. Let me tell you something, guys. I know sometimes painful things happen that knock our love out. It is not easy loving people. I want you to know, um, I can have a pity party. I can, I can think of some things. And I just don't have time for it. I just I don't want to have time for it. And I can dwell on where I've been hurt and I've been betrayed, where I've failed. I'm just telling you that's you know, looking at that is good, but I'll tell you dwelling on that is bad. And I don't know what's caused you to lose your love. You've just gotten so busy, you forgot why you were doing what you're doing. You got busy with other things. And so there is a love there, but it's a love for self that has crowded out your love for God and other people. Have you lost your first love? And the second question goes like this. That is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What will I do to get my love for God back? What will you do? What can you do? What will you do this year? Maybe taking hold means that right there. I'm going to take hold of the man. I'm going to take hold of the Lord. And I'm going to get my love back. We're going to pray and we're going to let the worship team close out this service. There's a card there in your bulletin. I hope you'll take advantage of it. Like I say, he who has ears this morning, I hope you heard what the Lord is saying to the churches and saying to you.
I know I'm listening. I just pray this morning that, um, that all of you here will find that love that you've lost. Let's pray. Father, thank you for thank you for this church, Lord. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the good hearts in this church. Father, I thank you for the people here. You know, we are not perfect. And we say that, but Father, I, w- I want you to know, I want to look at that. I hope we all will just look at that. And not just say it quickly, but really examine that. And be so thankful that your love covers over a multitude of sins. Father, we pray that you'll help us help create a deeper love for you. Because it never ends. Faith, hope, and love, well, uh, the greatest is love. Faith and hope have their limits, but not, not love. And Lord, I pray we'll have that endless love for you. That kind of love that will motivate us to work hard, motivate us, Father, to, to persevere. The kind of love, because that makes us last longer. The kind of love, Father, that translates into loving difficult people. And Father, the kind of love that helps us address our personal sin in an aggressive way and in a lasting way. Father, I pray for my brother Danny, my niece Morgan, my nephew Ethan. So difficult. I pray, Father, you just help us to love them, not just Stephanie. Well, you know, she's in good hands. You're taking care of her. I pray you'll take care of us. Help us as a church. Bring light to what darkness is trying to seize from this family. Lord, I think there's others here, Father, that are sick and are hurt. Father, we pray for their healing. Most of all, Father, this morning, we just pray, help us to love you because we know that's what you truly Truly want. Help us be a church that loves. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.